Hello and welcome. Joining me in conversation today, I'm very excited to welcome back to the podcast a longtime industry exec, Chris Heatherly. Chris is somebody who I go to on the regular for mentorship and coaching. And uh, because I have the horrible influencer disease, uh, I wanted to have a conversation with him about a recent post he made on LinkedIn. And I figured, why not record it? Turn it into content. Why have a normal human conversation when you can be generating content? So, Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, sir. Uh, I didn't know that I was officially a mentor and uh, and coach. I'm I'm glad to I'm glad we're making that announcement right now. Yeah, yeah. Any, I'm, I'm honored. <laughs> anybody who gives me advice more than twice automatically gets that uh, achievement unlocked. I'm, I'm I'm excited. Like SNL, do we get jackets on the fifth time? <laughs> Yeah, I, I'll have to uh, I'll have to think about what the what the prizes are <laughs> for uh, giving Ethan free life advice. Um, Chris, for those who are not familiar, can you give us a quick tour of your deep and multifaceted background in the entertainment industry? Because you have a very unique uh, experience across not just games, but games, comics, toys, like other forms of entertainment as well. So uh, so give everyone the the, the quick tour of your background? Yeah, so I started off uh, my career working in the design business, um, starting off with the Web One. Um, and uh, then I was working at a company called Frog Design uh, and uh, and through that got into industrial design and, and, uh, and physical physical project products and uh, physical products that had digital components. And I wound up going to Disney to work on uh, a consumer electronics business they were starting and they had been a client of mine at frog. And so I became GM of that. And, uh, through that, I wound up, we wound up getting in and folded in the toy team. And I ultimately, uh, wound up running Disney's toy business, uh, for several years. Um, so all told I was in their consumer products business for about seven years and then, uh, moved over to, uh, interactive cause I wanted to get back into digital uh, and was head of production and later uh, GM of Club Penguin uh, and the Virtual Worlds. Um, and then uh, after that, I took over the Disney Mobile business and built that into a top 50 publisher, um, got that profitable, um, launched several successful games there. We, when I was there, we had probably 50, 50 games that we were, that we were managing. Um, and then I left there uh, to go to uh, NBC Universal, start a uh, digital team uh, and, and games team there, uh, and launched several successful titles there. And then after that, uh, worked with Network and then Recur, uh, which uh, is an NFT company. So I've been, I've done toys, media, branded IP, games, uh, NFTs. I've, I've been involved in a whole range of things over the years. Uh, one part of your experience that I really uh, love to highlight is that the kids' MMO business, right? Club Penguin, Pixie Hollow, uh, Toontown Online, and Pirates of the Caribbean Online. I think that if you weren't like religiously following the sector or reading every story on uh, Gama Sutra like I was, it's something whose scale and business success might be totally unknown. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how big these early uh, MMOs were and the level of business success they achieved? Because from what I remember, th these were massive businesses. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember the stats for all of them, but Club Penguin was the largest and um, that alone probably did over half a billion dollars, probably $500 million, $600 million dollars. Uh, in revenue over its over its life, um, and uh, had DAU of one point over two million. Um, so it was a pretty. I mean, we called it the world's largest playground, um, and so it was a pretty. Uh, you know, it was it was a phenomenon uh, during that time with kids, um, and you know, sort of presaged a lot of stuff that's happened with Roblox and the metaverse and a lot of other stuff like that were inspired by Penguin. Penguin was inspired by Toontown, mm -hmm. which had started off as a uh, VR experiment uh, that, oh, was, wow. that was built by Mike Goslin, and, and I think he was running it for a while under his desk at Disney Imagineering, and they actually had... <laughs> 
the it got so popular they had to they had to uh, they decided when they kind of pivoted away from VR in the in the uh, you know early two thousands they decided to uh, to tell you how ahead of their time they were they were like well we'll put it on PC and um, that you know Two Town you know I think a lot of people look at um, the MMO world and of course you know Ultima Online and WoW are the ones that everyone thinks of but you know, Toontown in that kind of non-fantasy RPG space was the one that I think captured everyone's imagination. And then sort of all the other MMOs were, were you know, sort of um, drafted off of those, off of those two. But they were, they were both for their time, very sizable and had, had large audiences. Yeah. And, you know, since a lot of what we're talking about today is going to be kind of these UGC hangout hobbies worlds like Minecraft, Roblox, now uh, Fortnite. Um, what what are the parallels you see between these early web MMOs, the you know Club Penguin and, and Pixie Hollow, and um, the modern UGC uh, virtual world hangout game hybrid spaces that are just massive now? I think that it's really community is the main is the main thing that um, you know we talked all the time at Club Penguin about the fact that. Um, you know, Club Penguin was not a game. It had games in it, and it had a meta game. Um, but the heart of the of what we were doing was running a world in a community, and that's how we thought about it, um, and that's how we approached it every day. And a lot of the way we were oriented was around, you know, we had a fairly sizable customer service group that really did a lot of like community. Uh, you know, engagement and, um, you know, also were sort of micro influencers within, within the club penguin world. Um, I was one of those as well. My character was called spike hike. Um, and I was active on Twitter and I did, uh, meetups with, um, with kids on Saturdays called spike Saturdays. Um, but, um, but, you know, I think community is the thing that really, um, was the connective tissue between kind of what, started with those online worlds and then what came after i mean roblox was was just getting started when club penguin was kind of in its um you know later years um the difference was and i still don't think a lot of people understand what roblox is um you know what the roblox guys did is they built this platform for um you know, they're they're a, they're they're a bunch of. They started off as a bunch of Microsoft guys, like like .NET guys, and mm-hmm. they um they built it as this platform for deploying content um without a client push, right? And being able to pl- deploy three D interactive content without a client push. And it's it's very unique technology. It's still very unique. I mean, if you look at you know Unity and Unreal, the most people the the way most people build in those games, if you're going to push or in those engines. If you're going to push new content, you have to push a client release. And, um, you know, lots of people have systems for deploying content over the wire, but not for deploying gameplay over the wire, not for deploying mm-hmm. code, right? And all of Roblox is built in a, a language called Lua that um, we also used it. Uh, it's a, it's a long time um, MMO uh, language, but it's basically... Um, allows um, it's a scripting language that allows kind of um, pro- programmers who are not you know hyper technical to uh, gameplay programmers to to make gameplay, but it's all but it but it's all run on the server and it's all server authoritative. And so a lot of the magic in Roblox that hasn't really been replicated by anyone else, and the reason that they're able to do. Um, you know, something that other people can't do is that they built this platform that allows them to deploy new gameplay mm-hmm. um, without a client push into even the mobile app store. And they've somehow been able to get around, you know, all of Apple's other strictures in this way. No one else that I know of is really quite replicated that, that yet. And that is the heart of the dispute between Epic and Apple and Google, right? Mm-hmm. Because what, because what, um, because what Tim Sweeney was really fighting for was the ability, you know, amongst other things, to be able to deploy content into things like Fortnite Creative Mode um, dynamically without a client push. And, um, you know, the, it, the, the spat 
started over monetization, but it's really much bigger than that. It's a philosophical difference over, which is what I think we're going to talk about. It's a philosophical difference over kind of the app ecosystem versus Tim's vision of the, of the metaverse. Um, so anyway, I mean, if you, if you look at kind of at, 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 what, at, at Fortnite and Roblox, they sort of moved away from this idea that, you know, you've got this central town and this, um, you know, concept of a world as much. And they moved much more to this idea that like you can have your own, uh, you know, in Roblox, you have different games, right? And they just appear in like a, like a YouTube type um, metaphor. They appear, you know, YouTube type menu um, where they appear as tiles, you know, Minecraft, it's just different servers and people, you know, just started basically pirating, <laughs> running pirate, you mm -hmm. know, Minecraft servers. And eventually Microsoft caught up to this and allowed you to host your own servers and, um, you know, deploy kind of official content. But there's still tons of uh, individually run and operated uh, Minecraft servers out there that are completely independent of Microsoft. And so, uh, you know, what they really embraced was the UGC element. And I would say that what made Club Penguin more successful than any of the other um, kids MMOs is that because it was an original IP, you know, we could do whatever we wanted with it, but the, but the kids could also do whatever they wanted. So, you know, we had the Igloo system, which was nowhere near as, um, you know, um, robust as what you could do in, Mike, in Minecraft, but you could build, um, you know, your own, your own housing and build, you know, kind of elaborate about environments that and get really creative. And, you know, we weren't able to take the same kind of creative liberties with the other IPs because they had, you know, studio holders and, right. you know, big filmmakers who had opinions and, oh, you can't do that in Pixie Hollow because they don't know about, you know, technology or right. whatever. Trinkerbell so, doesn't have a, a flip phone. She doesn't have a flip phone. So, you know, that's exactly right. And so, you know, I think Club Penguin, um, you know, was one of the first to really allow kids and like a very casual audience to have this, um, to be able to get creative. And then Roblox and, and Minecraft completely ran in that direction and, you know, letting the community, you know, up to the extent that the community is even running their own servers and their own mods and their own stuff like this in Minecraft. And so that, you know, before kind of what we, you know, think of as like the new generation of metaverse, I mean, these guys were really, were really in the metaverse before the metaverse. Um, and that, I, I think it's all part of kind of a long progression, um, but it's tied to a lot of technology innovation that allowed them to do that. Yeah. And, and just before we get in, into the meat of it, um, can you name drop some of the hit mobile games you've had a hand in at Disney and NBCU? Because a lot of the a lot of the Twiggies are uh, mobile game devs, and so I think it would be good to know uh, uh, some of the things that you've uh, had your hand in. Yeah, Star Wars Commander, uh, Disney Emoji Blitz, uh, um, Marvel Adventures Alliance, uh, Club Penguin, obviously, um, uh, Jurassic. Uh, World Alive, Jurassic World the Game, uh, Funko Pop Blitz was the one I did uh, with you guys. That's just that's just a just a few off the top of my head, and then all yeah. the stuff I did at Recur. Um, but uh, I I added it up one time. I've done I haven't done quite a billion dollars yet, but I've done I think uh, you know over uh, probably uh, eight hundred million dollars in 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 game revenue across everything I've done. That's amazing. All right. So, um, you wrote, uh, this great LinkedIn essay, uh, where your thesis was the game as app era is ending as we are entering the game as content era. And, uh, this was a big kind of, this was really top of mind, uh, for me last week at GDC because, uh, the unreal engine for Fortnite plus Creator Economy 2.0 announcement was, I think, for me, the most interesting announcement yeah, by far. that came out last week. Um, and also, I did, uh, as a session, a fireside chat with our mutual friend, uh, Joe Ferencz, who runs GameFam, uh, the biggest uh, developer and publisher on the Roblox platform. We talked about the economics of Roblox. So this, these, um, although I've 
it's not something I've focused on personally. This is something uh, I, I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, and so I thought it was a great uh, opportunity to, to talk about that essay and, and, and find out your thoughts on this. So uh, let's start here. Um, you said the game as an app era is ending and we're moving to the game as content era. So um, how would you characterize the games as app era? It feels like you're talking about more than just uh, literal phone apps, right? Well, it, it, I'd say phone apps are a big part of it, but it's also, um, you know, Steam. Um, it's, you know, to a certain degree, the Epic Store, although I think the Epic Store is healthier. Um, but it's this idea of the way to make and ship. The old, the old idea was the way to make and ship a game was... You know, you made this triple, you have this thing that's supposed to be triple A or double A, and it costs, you know, 40 or 60 bucks, and you spend several years making it, and you put it in a box, and you sell it at GameStop, right? And then, and then, the, and then, and then when Apple came along, especially when Apple and Steam came along, the metaphor shifted to this idea of apps, where it's like, okay, well, I have all these standalone games that I can download digitally. And, uh, you know, I have some on my phone at all times and I delete some and I download some more. And um, and isn't it fun to download all these apps? And, you know, that gave rise to the whole bubble games industry that 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 we were a part of. And there's a whole ecosystem that's built around that, uh, you know, from, you know, user acquisition and analytics and ad monetization and cross promotion and you know all kinds of stuff right but you in order to publish a game uh either on 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 any of these platforms you had to have a um a full capability to market and get people to install an application on their phone or their computer um, and there's a lot of friction in that funnel, right? Because you have to market mm-hmm. somewhere and then that place that you marketed drives to a store. And then in the store, you have to get somebody to download the application and then you have to get them to launch the application. And then you have to get them through some kind of Fatui experience that gets them, you know, situated in the app and also gets their account set up and so forth and teaches them the game. And uh, and everything we did in the mobile times, right, was about was about trying to optimize the the drop off in that funnel because it's very frictionful. And the whole mm-hmm. nature of you know where, where this really kind of exploded was you know when Apple made the privacy changes that you guys have talked about ad nauseum on the podcast. But um, you know that broke the entire ecosystem because you know when the App Store shifted the way that they started doing featuring and it became completely uh, ineffective at driving organics and driving discovery. And then when the privacy changes basically broke paid user acquisition, you know, it's now very difficult slash impossible to get discovered as a newcomer in the mobile ecosystem. And so what you're seeing is, um, you know, the, the a ton of consolidation into, you know, the big publishers uh, and they're not launching new games necessarily. They're just live operating the stuff that they've got now. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that's going to get very stagnant. I think when you look at Steam, it's a, you know, Steam and kind of the, the, the PC world, it's a little bit different. Um, you know, but it's a similar problem in that I would not say Steam is the, you know, best user experience that, <laughs> that has ever been created. It's got, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of games in it now. You know, it's very hard to discover something new. And so, you know, it's just getting harder and harder as an as a, as an up-and-comer um, or someone with yeah. a new idea to get someone to install your app. And it's gotten to the point where it's almost no longer viable. And what's coming up alongside it are Roblox. And now, and, and I think people were able to dismiss that for a long time and say, well, you know, that's really for kids, right? And people grow out of that and then they're going to get these AAA games. But when, but when Epic, which is the maker of Unreal, which is, you know, the biggest AAA game engine in the world, you know, announces Unreal Editor, which will allow, you know, kind of semi-pro and pro, uh, and maybe even less than semi-pro, 
uh, creators to make and deploy content into uh, Fortnite, which is one of the biggest games in the world. And then they dedicate 40% of their, of their revenue from that game to a rev share to creators who are creating content for the platform. And that war chest is double the size of what, of what creators are creating on Roblox. I don't think you can just dismiss it and kind of like minimize it. So you've got this situation yeah. where if you're a new studio and I mean, you and I heard this all over GDC, right? Nobody's talking about mobile. Like, like, you know, when right. you would, I, you know, I talked to great developers, you know, mostly work for higher guys, but great developers who have done really good games. And they're just saying like, it's, it's as dry as the Mojave out there. Like nobody's calling them. Nobody wants to do work, you know? And so they're, sh they're all shifting their attention to something else. So it's either going to be, you know, AR and this Apple's Apple's new headset, or it's going to be Web three, or you know, it's going to be a lot of people are shifting their energy over to. Ro I mean, people that I never thought would take Roblox seriously were saying, "Yeah, we're starting a Roblox team," or we're, or you know, mm -hmm. Fortnite creative mode looks interesting. So when the when the people when the talented people that I know start shifting their energy so dramatically, I I, I just see that as a massive sea change. You know, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This podcast is brought to you by Google for Games. It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash Google for games or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for games. Want to know how your results stack up against other gaming apps? Well, now you can. AppsFlyer, the industry leader in measurement and mobile analytics, just released a new tool providing benchmarks on 21 key growth metrics for over 20 categories in 25 markets for both iOS and Android. And it's available now for free at appsflyer.com benchmarks. Yes, you heard that correctly, completely free. In just one click, you can easily compare installs, retention, revenue, media cost, and much, much more. With these benchmarks, you'll be able to get intel on your competitors, set goals based on insights from the top 10% of mobile games, explore new markets and growth opportunities, inform soft launches, and understand market dynamics and trends so that you can adapt your UA strategy accordingly. Over the past seven years, AppsFlyer's industry data reports, trends, and insights have helped thousands of mobile app marketers to excel at their jobs and grow their apps. Trust them. They know their data. Head to appsflyer.com slash benchmarks now for more info. Part of what I think allowed for the explosive growth, not only of players, not only of revenue, but also of investment dollars in the games as app era is the uh, effectiveness and provability of continuous marketing, right? Like when you are selling a boxed product, you are, I, I just talked to Alex Seropian yesterday, right? About uh, the, the early days of Bungie and about, you know, buying end caps at Walmart to display myth two, for instance. Um, when you're doing a box product, you build it, you do a giant marketing spend, and you hope that you um, um, may recoup and, and make a profit off that. And the game reduces in price over time, and so you can't you can't just keep marketing the game, right? Uh, because there there comes to a point where uh, uh, additional marketing for a game that used you know used to cost seventy dollars now costs. $5, right? If you're marketing uh, Cyberpunk 2077 and it costs 5 or $10 at Walmart, you're, you're not going to be able to make a profit on that marketing spend necessarily. Um, now with, with in-app purchases and MTX, maybe you can, but it's not something... We don't see people spending marketing for 
years in that premium uh, paradigm. Uh, and in mobile, you could prove that, hey, when I spend $1 or, you know, when I spend $10 on average to get a user to try Legendary and they make a lot more than $10 over the next three years on average, uh, give me more money so I can keep marketing Legendary to more and more users, right? And that sort of provability and scalability, I think, has been the the underpinning of the growth of, of our industry in this game as an app era, right? I, I, I think that's right. But I also think the other thing connected to that is that um, that whole strategy is not just predicated on bringing in users, but it's bringing in high quality yeah. targeted, uh, you know, users who will convert and have deep spin depth, right? Yeah. And so the way that you are able to make that work is that you were forever kind of whale hunting, right? And that's the part of the industry that is now broken. And I think that the thing that that a lot of people are underestimating is that the genres you pick, the mechanics you pick, these all these games are designed around the acquisition and conversion funnel, right? Mm-hmm. And and when you so fundamentally change the characteristics of of and what you can acquire and the quality of the users that you can acquire. And there's no good obvious surrogate for that. And the replacements for it are things like, well, maybe we'll use influencers, TikTok videos. That's, I I think those things are great. I would rather do that than, than get, you know, I'd rather have people who are like demonstrating why my game is cool than spending money on ads on Facebook. But you know, at the end of the day, the characteristics of those users are going to be completely different. So I don't think people understand the degree to which the game as app model has been broken by these privacy changes mm-hmm. and kind of how how it how disruptive it is to the entire ecosystem, you know. Right. And and just to to illustrate that genre um point. Um, when you are able to go spear fishing for high retaining, high spending users in, say, a forex strategy game or a collectible card game, um, you might be able to um, get really comfortable with, say, uh, a hundred eighty day payback window or a three hundred sixty five day payback window, right? Like you can get comfortable um, with spending marketing dollars. Um, on a pool of well-targeted users because you know that over the long term, you know, the the early ROAS, the early part of the ads return on ad spend might not look great, but it'll grow and grow and grow over time because of the spend depth. Um, but when your ability to target that sort of payer um, is diminished, um, you might be looking at genres like idle or merge with which combine both um, lower cost of acquisition than those kind of more mid-core, hardcore genres, and also earlier return on ad spend, right? So that you're, from what I've picked up, you know, I haven't actually done this work myself, but from from working with the experts like uh, like Seaford and and others, um, what I've kind of picked up is, because of the changing nature of uh, kind of targeting and measurement, uh, it's easier to focus on genres where you might get a really strong signal on day one or day seven, right? Where you're not waiting around for the signal on day 30 or day 60 that you think that that advertising tactic is going to be profitable. Right. This is exactly the point is, I think one of the biggest mistakes, and I work with a lot of clients in my consulting business. So, I mean, you know, I work with, you know, I've worked with dozens, I've given this advice multiple times, but what's non-obvious to a lot of people is, um, in this space is they think I'm going to make a game and then I'm going to go market it. Mm -hmm. The way the space actually works for the people who are savvy is I'm going to figure out how I can acquire users into a game type that allows me to get a signal on marketing success, but also monetization success that will allow me to quickly uh, iterate on marketing and monetization in game that will allow me to scale, right? 
And and so and so where you plan to market the game, how you plan to acquire the users, what characteristics of those users you can rely on, what genre you're talking about. Before you even get started with a single line of code, so many aspects of your game's success and failure have been decided for you by the marketplace, right? And yeah. so and so that that's what a lot of people uh, un, don't understand. And because of that, I don't think that this is just a matter of like, well, we'll just make better creative or we'll just find a new creative hook for marketing. It's it's so it's so baked into the DNA, right? Um, so it, it, it's, it's a pretty, the other thing that you guys, that, and you guys have covered this on the podcast a lot. One thing you, I haven't heard you guys talk about is the free money access aspect of this, which I think is just as significant, which is to say that, you know, the entire mobile games era happened in an era where, you know, where the, where the prime lending rate was extremely low. Right. And if you look at a lot of these guys who scaled up during that time, they were using you know they don't talk about it a lot, but they were using these debt facilities that they were that they were um, that they were uh, you know setting up in order to fuel their own growth because basically they needed to f- to to float the payback window of you know starts off you know ninety days and then gets one hundred and eighty days and sometimes mm-hmm. three hundred sixty five days so they need a way to, to 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 fund that profitability or you know that that window without taking working capital out of the business and you know the vcs absolutely fucking hate user acquisition and hate seeing their their capital get used for user acquisition so Mm -hmm. that's where they started to rely on these debt vehicles well the problem is now you can't get debt, you know at the at those rates i think the prime lending rate is i mean it's 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 upward of six now or something right so so Mm -hmm. you know you, you you the when you can't when there's a real cost to money and you can, and suddenly you're paying a premium on uh, on that payback window. You can no longer afford to finance user acquisition in the same way. And I think yeah. that has been as disruptive as the privacy change. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. That's that's a uh, tremendous point. And, and I think we like hint at it when we say things like uh, the macro controls everything yeah the, being the macroeconomic and uh, environment but I don't think I actually um, hadn't hadn't thought of that before um, that's that's an excellent point so we've got um, w- when we think about all the challenges of launching new products in the game as app ecosystem um, and it's not you know, in my opinion, it's not that games as apps is dead are dead. It's just so much harder now yeah. that they're going to be harder to fund, harder to make hits, harder to overcome the incumbent advantage. Um, like, I don't think we've seen the last billion dollar a year new mobile game. No. It's just it's just a really tough market and one that it, so we've got investors who are going to not want to uh, invest in that segment at nearly the levels. We've got the privacy change making the marketability, the marketing tactics of certain genres um, uh, impossible or just incredibly difficult. Uh, We've got um, macroeconomic factors, uh, lending rate, the the cost of money, making it harder to finance your UA, um, and and just market saturation. Tremendous incumbent advantage due to uh, you know search search ranking essentially in the store. Um, are there other factors you see as adding nails to the coffin of this game as app era? I think the I mean I, I, I mean the other one is just the 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 geopolitical situation and you know the difficulty of getting a global hit or the um you know or the perception of a global hit like i think Mm -hmm. that you know chinese investment for example which was funding a lot of this is going to be a lot more difficult uh you know there was a lot of russian investment like Mm -hmm. you know so I, i you know i think i there's just a lot of there's just kind of a lot of factors here yeah um you know I, I, I think the thing before we completely kind of like, you know, uh, denigrate the, the, the game as app era that was so good <laughs> to us, you know, it did give us two things, right? 
One was it acculturated people to this idea of like live operations and that a game can grow and sustain people over time. And that was pretty new. Right. And it's gone on to change, uh, you know, the way that triple a publishers think about what they're doing right if you look at you know destiny or you know fortnite or you know especially fortnite you know um there you know live operations has become you know standard even in large uh pc and 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 console games um so i think that's grand theft auto online yeah red dead online exactly and so you know it's acculturated people to think differently about games um you know in that way so this this is all a great setup to bring us to the game as content hypothesis. Um, can you explain kind of the the core idea of your uh, essay? What what the what games as content are, and why you think it's the next major evolution for the games industry? Yeah. Before I go there, so so there was another point that I just lost that I want to bring up before I say that, which is that of course multiplayer. The the other piece I was going to say was multiplayer. So the other thing that's that, that's happened was you know early on in the in the mobile era, you know everything was like single player, and and um, part of the reason for that is you couldn't count on the on the network, right? So you couldn't you couldn't make you know you couldn't make games that were too real time. You know they needed to. You know, even though a lot of the backend systems were server authoritative, um, you needed, you know, they were very kind of like tolerant of the network dropping out, right? And mm-hmm. But what's happened over time um, is that as the networks have gotten better, Wi-Fi has gotten, you know, ubiquitous, it's gotten really fast in homes, people have broadband, you know, 5G, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if you look at the games that are breaking through now, they're, they're kind they're they're for the most part, multiplayer games right you know Mm -hmm. you said you know well we haven't seen the last billion dollar apps on mobile and i think that's probably true marble snap may be one of those um but it's a multiplayer game stumble guys could be one of those but it's a multiplayer game right and so i think the other thing on top of kind of live operations that the audience has been acculturated to now is kind of away from the single player thing and back to multiplayer and sort of play with your friend type Games, you know, mm-hmm. Among Us is another is another huge, massive, you know, hit on all platforms that I, you know, it's had over 600, 700 million installs on on mobile, you know, um, alone, probably over a billion on all platforms, and uh, you know, in, in in a couple of years, and it's just and it's a very simple game that's about getting people to play together. So, you know, we started off talking about this idea of you know MMOs and sort of how does that influence Roblox and so forth and so on. I think that more of that DNA has started to come back into um, the free-to-play mobile and kind of casual space, you know, Fall Guys, Rocket League on console and PC that has kind of shifted what people want to do when they play games, which is not just play a game by themselves, but they want to play with their friends. And the pandemic really accelerated this because – you know, it was the only way you could socialize with people, right? And so, and so, there's been a behavioral change there, and that all all brings us to this idea of games of con- as content. So, you know, when you look at these big engine, these, these big kind of metaverse apps like Roblox and Fortnite, um, you know, what have they done? So they've aggregate they've aggregated huge audiences. Um, they've taken them through all that funnel friction that that has been a massive pain in the ass. I mean, how much time have you spent optimizing the first minute or three minutes of a game in your life <laughs> just to get people past the, you know, just just to get people to their first second of gameplay, right? right. Roblox and, and Fortnite have already taken all care of that for you. They've got the accounts. They've got the username, the password, the credentials, the inventory the um the social the social graph your friends right they also have an important thing that i've learned from web3 which is liquidity and what do i mean by that what i mean is that in in roblox kids have robux you know and they're getting i mean there have been some great articles by navic about how massive the roblox gift card business is we had a huge gift card business with club penguin you know, there's no good way to gift these, you know, to gift a, vir- a virtual world to your friends, right? And these, these ro- you know, these Robux, um, you know, gift cards are, you know, what kids are getting for Christmas. I, ca- I kind of joked the other day that like the dot, you know, 
all global currencies are going to zero and the only currency that we're going to have is Robux. So, <laughs> you know, I, tr- truly. So, so, you know, we're, you know, invest in, you know, Robux and, 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 uh, you know, and currency in Fortnite because that's where it's going. Right. But, but, you know, the thing is that, um, because people are already invested, they literally have virtual money in their wallets. It's so much easier to get them to spend in your game right now. Now, Fortnite yeah. isn't doing direct monetization yet, but I predict that it will. But if you look at Robux or Roblox, you know, the fact that people are already that much further down the funnel and really what you're trying to do is take somebody who has already said, I'm a Roblox player, I want to be here, I've got friends here, blah, 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 blah. You're just trying to get them to try your product, right? And yeah. so it's a you're so much further down the funnel. It's a, it's a, it's a much more... Um, efficient starting point um and what it means for a game team is you don't have to take on as much overhead you you still have to have marketing you know you can't get rid of the marketing department but you don't have to you don't have to have as much as much tech as much infrastructure i mean how much of you know network when we were there was dedicated just to getting people to install an app and measure that and do that, you know, do that, you know, and, and, and run kind of all the, the analytical gyrations around it. You know, I'm not saying all that goes away, but it gets, but it gets to be a much, uh, it, 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 it's a much smaller part of what you're trying to do overall. The other thing is that these, these apps are game engines, right? And so they have so much functionality already built into them that you don't have to build for yourself. And, you can develop the content at at frankly triple A looking stuff. I mean, you know, because when you're working with with Fortnite, uh, you know, and, and Fortnite Creative Mode and, and and Unreal Editor, it's being built in Unreal. Like it looks like Unreal. Mm-hmm. It, this is the stuff the pros use. They've just put an easier kind of visual scripting, you know, GUI on it. But you're able to produce content at very high quality. And because you're not launching a standalone application, you know, part of the thing that you have to do when you're making a standalone app is the game has got to be big enough and deep enough to justify being a standalone app. And for you to go spend on marketing and acquire people and start doing soft launch and blah, 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 you have to have a certain amount of depth to what you're doing to justify the whole enterprise. And this is part of what the hyper casual guys started to whittle away at was saying, hey, can I launch less game earlier can I focus on the first yeah. day, second day, third day, and getting retention really high there, as opposed to building the first month of the game, right? But but with yeah. but but with um, but there's a certain if you're trying to build something that's not hyper casual, there's a certain kind of critical mass that you have to have to go into soft launch, and then these mobile games would stay in soft launch for you know one, two, you know, multiple years, and so. Uh, the difference is with, with these metaverse, uh, engines, you're able to develop these games much more affordably. Like if you look at what our friends at GameFam are doing, you know, they're developing games for hundreds of thousands of dollars, low single digit million dollars. You know, it's not these mass, I mean, you know, mobile budgets have gone up to like 10 million bucks. So you don't have to launch a and that's without the marketing. And that's without the marketing. <laughs> and you don't have to launch a game onto Roblox or Fortnite that is, you know, 30 days of gameplay and, uh, you know, or the user will never come back because you're not, because they're already yeah. retained in Fortnite or they're already retained in Roblox. Yes, retention is important long term for your game. Absolutely. You're not going to get away from that. But what you can do is develop these games much faster, much cheaper, at a very high quality level, deploy them quickly, get a signal on whether anybody cares, whether people are installing it, whether they're yeah. having fun, you have a, you can iterate a lot, and you it's it's a less kind of binary outcome, I would argue, than than what we have experienced in mobile. And fundamentally from an investment standpoint, Look, the rev share sucks on Roblox, and everybody knows that. But you know, already you can see that Epic is being more generous, and you know, there's there's spatial out there for for those of us who who are Unity people. I mean, you're going to have multiple 
metaverse ecosystems in the next couple of years competing against one another and the rev shares, the, the rev scrapes that they take are going to go down. It's going to put pressure on Roblox and it's going to make this kind of content creation for these platforms a much more viable enterprise because it's cheaper to develop. It's faster to market. It still looks great. The users are already there. Um, and, and it's a more, and, and it's kind of a less risky proposition for investors. So I think that, I think you're going to see a lot of capital start to go, start to go in that direction. Um, and, and the other thing I'll just say, and I know I'm talking a lot here is one thing I've learned from game fam is as you move in this direction, though, the, the way you think about what you're doing as a game developer is different because a lot of what game, a lot of game fam's talent start off as individual creators who are kind of the YouTube equivalent of game makers, right? They're, they mm -hmm. are personalities and influencers within the Roblox ecosystem um, or outside of the ecosystem on YouTube or whatever. They are game makers, but they're maybe not professional game makers but they are good at making something and engaging an audience. And it goes back. It reminds me of my club penguin experience where a lot of what we did was like a, um, you know, call and response back and forth between us and the audience. Right. And so I yeah. think that this whole, you see it in web three too, where, you know, community is such a big deal. Like this whole idea of being able to, the developer being able to engage their audience um, you know, uh, listen to them kind of, you know, this interplay between the audience and the developer, you know, it, 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 there's this new type of game developer that I think is going to emerge. That's kind of a, you know, developer, uh, you know, influencer type personality that is, that is more of a content creator than, than the way we traditionally think of, game development and it's going to be a less technical enterprise and i think that's the other thing is that w the more you move to like visual scripting and these types of things and away completely from you know uh server management uh build and release pipelines you know all of that all of that all of that all that writing stuff. writing duplicate client and server all code. Of, all of that stuff, right. right? Yeah, writing duplicates to client server code, so you have to have two, you know, you have to have client and server devs. All of that other stuff, you'll still have programmers or scripters, but it'll be easier for newcomers to pick up and it will be cheaper and less people intensive to develop this type of content and deploy it. You're not going to have to worry about every aspect of everything like keeping the game live all the time. Um, you know, so I think that, I think that, you know, it's lowering the barriers to entry for developers, but it's also kind of reducing the number of, it, it's low, it's, it's lowering the technical hurdles, right? But it's also reducing just the number of things that you need to be good at in order to be successful. Recent changes in the app stores are boon to mobile game developers. Now you can sell in-game items and currencies with big savings on transaction fees. And Exola just added three new features to their web shop for mobile game solution to help you level up your monetization practices outside the app stores. The three solutions are subscriptions, analytics, and promotions. Now subscriptions are a smart add to your mobile revenue strategy. They boost game revenue with predictability while maintaining a lawyer user base. Analytics give you data, and data has become fuel on which modern society runs. If you don't know your players, you won't know what they want or how to get them to click that buy button. Analyze your data so you can create critical piece of the purchasing puzzle. Finally, promotions allow you to easily reach out to opt-in players via email or Discord and other channels to bring them to your web shop on your website. You'll be able to generate new sales and keep more profit. To find how to get started, visit exola.pro slash mobile or go to the link in this podcast description. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. 
and Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing the full-on deconstructing first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, Focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI. So what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. You're hitting on something that's very uh, close to me. Something I've been th- why I thought the UEFN announcement was so interesting, and just like a, a little part of my. Um, there's always been a tension in my career because I'm like a very hardcore gamer, right? I spend hundreds of dollars on the Steam Deck uh, in the past year getting various uh, AAA, indie, obscure Japanese games. Like I love uh, video games and I've never, and, and for the past 20 years, I have not worked on the types of games that I myself enjoy and part a big part of the reason for that was my first job. Um, I was an intern and a QA tester on a, a AAA console game on Star Wars Battlefront. And I was there, you know, doing whatever grunt work anyone would give me um, on, a, on an 80-plus person team. Uh, the team got really big. Uh, and then in between Battlefront one and two, there were layoffs and I was laid off, right? Like my skill set wasn't needed. And I, I got at the end of that experience and I was like, um, I want to feel like I have creative input into this game. I don't, into what I'm working on. I don't need creative control, but I want to be, uh, influential. I don't just want to be the guy who literally one of my most important jobs was, burning discs when the dev team went home for the night uh, to (laughs) give to a one-armed courier who would fly them up to San Francisco to Lucasfilms every LucasArts every night and then manage a FTP transfer of that build in case there was a prop like that was what I was doing right that was not a you know there was nothing creative or really that useful about it (laughs) Right. At the time. And so I went to a sector of the industry, um, casual downloadable games where the the teams I was working on were were five people. Mm -hmm. Every single person had input. Right. Uh, Because it was only five people and the risks were lower because the budgets were sub one hundred thousand dollars to get a game to market. And, you know, when I think about the last two mobile game teams I was on, what a dramatic um, difference that was to even the early days of mobile, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We both know of mobile game teams that are, you know, probably 40 to 70 people working on something for years before it hits soft launch. Like these are the console, as you said, the console budgets of your and the console team sizes of your and kind of every time I hit that, like why I've avoided 3D so long was because of the team size and the cost and the time to market. And so when I see UEFN and I'm like, oh my goodness, like I could make a, a real playable multiplayer 3D game yeah. in a couple months with one or two other people and a bunch of assets that other people have created that I bought off the marketplace or that come in the free libraries, right? Like you know, you don't you don't need to spend ten thousand dollars or more per character to have a hit game. Archero used Unity Asset Store assets, right? Mm-hmm. Like all of these things are are super um, appealing to me uh, because it takes it it brings me closer to what I think is the most fulfilling creative part of the endeavor. Yeah, I mean, I I I think that's exactly right. I mean, I. 
I am just genetically predisposed to just hate all that big shit. You know, like <laughs> it, uh, it, it, you know, it says the former Disney and NBC Universal executive. Yeah, but anyone who knew me, I was like this. I was, you know, I was this like you know countercultural corporate figure who like was right. constantly fighting the bigness and the slowness and the bureaucracy of it all. And you know, I, 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 I you know, I feel like there is an element of this industry that, and it's really driven by like the EA diaspora. You know that like. You know, whenever you have a game company, like if you want good management, you know, you need management for it. You got to get an EA guy. You know, it's like going to Harvard or whatever. And the 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 way those guys are wired often is like, you know, it's how how do we make this more triple A? How do we make this? And and why do we want to make it more triple A? Because the the higher end it is, the more capital intensive it is, the more um, resource intensive it is, the more we win, right? Because only those companies can really deploy right. that type of capital and those resources for, you know, four or five, six years, right? So they kind of did the same thing in mobile. Um, you know, I felt like Don Matrick was, was tried this and it didn't work at Zynga, right? It, it, it blew up on him. He tried to go to AAA too early. But, you know, slowly but surely, the mobile space has gotten, has crept up in budget size as well, right? What's, what's to your point, like, what's utterly fucking disruptive is the idea that you can make a AAA game with a small team that looks yeah. awesome and is multiplayer and has all the bells and whistles, whistles and meta systems that you can use, right? And increasingly, I mean, you look at Beamable, which which I advise, so I'm talking my book here, but, um, you know, like, they've got a a whole free-to-play stack of services, microservices that you can integrate in your game in Unity, right? So the the this whole idea that you can make something that looks and plays AAA at the level of what Epic is doing, because it's built with their shit, is completely disruptive to the way games yeah. have been made for the last 20 years, you know? Right. And, and just to uh, clarify or reinforce this point, you know, you're not, you're not talking only about the future where someone can uh, uh, write some text into mid journey and get a, a 3d asset with a proper, you know, a full 3d asset out of it that you can put in AAA games. You're not, you're not talking, uh, you're both talking about that kind of, uh, potential future that's very far off, but also just making a game in unreal using their free texture libraries and assets you brought, bought off the store, right? Your son and his college friends could make a AAA looking game right now they, they, they don't probably need to will. wait for ai tools Tr truthfully right. they probably will as their summer project i'm not kidding yeah like yeah you know i mean no i saw a game so fortnite creative mode was announced what last week week before and already i saw a game that somebody was working on uh that was on i think linkedin that was a uh a, a horror an asymmetric horror survival game right and they already had a beautiful looking prototype for it. Now, how is that possible? Like, that's, dude, in, <laughs> a couple of years ago, you would have spent the first couple months just setting up the, the you know, the, 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 the infrastructure and the build and deploy pipeline and all that stuff. That would have been yeah. several weeks. These guys in a week or two are making a game. So, yeah, I'm not talking about like all this AI stuff, which is, which is not years and years in the future. It's like, it's like, you know, it's months in the future, but, but I'm talking about right now, what you can do in Fortnite and, and, and unreal creative mode. I mean, there was that Fortnite game that, that, um, you know, went around on LinkedIn as well. That was, or sorry, uh, Roblox game. I forget the name right. of it, but front lines. front lines that was, you know, very triple a looking, you know, shooter, and kind of blew people's minds. Now, you know, there was an interview with that guy and he said, hey, it's not easy to do and it took us a long time to get there and yada, yada. Okay, yes, that's true now, but will it be true in two years? Probably not, right? So it's a very disruptive um, 
concept, and I actually think it's going to be really good for the industry in the sense that, you know, a lot of people have been able to focus on the art and graphics side of this um, and, you know, be really good at that and be sort of mediocre at the gameplay. And I think that it's mm-hmm. going to be a great equalizer where if everybody is cooking with the same water, as we used to say in the PC industry, then, then you know, the difference between one game and another is not necessarily going to be the graphic fidelity. It's going to be the gameplay. And I think it's going to force a lot of people to really focus on that aspect, you know? Um, I am going to end it here which is that uh, your son, like me, is a USC Trojan. He's currently studying at the Interactive Media Division, so I know he's out there designing, producing, making games. Um, Given this essay, given this uh, thesis of the ascent of the games as content era, what advice are you giving him right now about where the industry is going and and how he should focus his uh, time and effort? I mean, I'm I'm harassing him both, both... Privately and now publicly to <laughs> to to make a to make something in Fortnite creative mode. I mean, look, you know, he's got, you know, um, he he's funny because when he went to USC, he was like, he's not there to like just play; he's there to win. So mm-hmm. he he like from day one was like, all right, who's the best programmer? <laughs> who's the best like artisan? So <laughs> when he went to pick his roommates, he like. He picked guys that could make games with him. So they have a little uh, studio in their apartment. And, you know, it's like four of them. And, you know, what I'm encouraging him to do is say, like, okay, well, what can you, uh, you know, what can you guys build and ship as, like, a summer project that maybe you can even make money on? Like, the thing that, the thing that really flips the bit, and it's funny because you send your kid to this school that costs, you know, way too much to learn how to make games. And, and then at some point they realize that they can actually make money doing it. And, you know, but the thing is they think like, Oh, what I'm really going to make money is like, after I get out of here and I go into the industry and like work in QA and then, you know, carry enough coffee for someone, they're going to let me, you know, like they're going to let me do something. Right. Right. The the Ethan Levy path. (laughs) The Ethan Levy path. And I'm like, look, that is a very honorable path. And I think we all know that the best game designers come out of QA, right? So that's 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 a valuable thing. But I'm like, look, make a freaking game and ship it over the summer. Yeah. And who knows, you might actually make some money. It may not be a lot of money. And this is the, this is the thing about the games as content era that I think is going to be different, is that the entire focus of the game is app era was about how do I make this as a professional enterprise um, where I can sustain this big company and yada, yada, yada. The YouTube kind of creative creator culture, the TikTok influencer culture, you know, if you look at that, at sort of the video influencer culture, not all of these people are quitting their day jobs, right? Mm -hmm. They're doing this as a hobby and it turns into a little bit more than that. And it turns into, a nice income stream. And then maybe if they're really good at it, it turns into a jobby job. Right. Right. I think the same thing's going to happen with gaming where, you know, my son and his friends can make a game in, in, in Fortnite creative mode over the summer, deploy it and maybe make, you know, they're spending money for next year. Yeah. Right. And that is so fucking powerful. I mean, I'll, I'll leave you, I'll leave you with this thought, which is, you know, one of the things I, I, I interview, I used to do these interviews for, um, for uh, Ned Sherman, who does uh, the LA Games Conference and other stuff, uh, Digital Media Wire. And I, and I interviewed this woman named Keisha Howard, and she um, deals with uh, primarily inner city schools and trying to get kids in Chicago to, um, to get interested in being in the game industry, right? So she's trying mm-hmm. to take these kids from under underprivileged neighborhoods and then try to evangelize them to be in games. And I asked her, "What is the um, what's the hardest thing uh, to do?" And she said, "She said when I talk to kids and I ask them what they want to do, they say, well, I want to be a rapper, or I want to be a basketball player, or a sports player, because.'" Those are things that they can see in their neighborhood that people can do. And maybe someone 
you know, went to the went to the NFL or something, right? And so they see that as aspirational. But in Chicago, which has a smaller gaming scene, they don't know anyone who's in the games industry. Right. So the hardest thing, so they all play games, they all know about games, but the hardest thing to get these kids to see it as a career is helping them understand that it's a job that they can't have. Right. When you think about what YouTube did for video creation is give every kid in the country and make the most aspirational thing that you can be for better or for worse, probably for worse, but to be a YouTube influencer, right? right. And if we can do that for the games industry, there's a whole, there is so much talent that doesn't have access to this industry that if we give them, if they have access to, 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 to Unreal Creative Mode or, or to Roblox and they have access to YouTube, they can make games at the level of the pros, right? They can learn everything you have to do from YouTube. They can watch a million videos. They can watch the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. They can watch videos on that go deep into monetization and game mechanics and they can learn everything they need to know online. And, and these these platforms, but what they don't have access to necessarily are the technical infrastructure, right, in the past to be able to do this. Now, if they can do it on their own and they can deploy these things to the cloud and they can do these games as a hobby where they're while they're kind of getting started, I think the game is the games industry in 10 years or five years, the types of people that we're bringing into it will look completely different because Absolutely. of this and kind of will be a better industry for it. The more, the more the makeup of our yeah. industry reflects the makeup of the world, the better games we'll make, pretty much. Chris, thank you so much uh, for writing the oh, essay. Thank you for being a coach and mentor. And thank you for joining me today in conversation. I really loved it. Thank you for being a friend and thanks for having me on. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructoroffun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.